For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. As Governor Stitt signs the most restrictive ban of abortion in the United States, a new poll shows a majority of Oklahoma voters believe there should not be a total ban on abortion. In fact, according to the survey by Amber Integrated, only a third support the idea of a total ban. Neva, should this get the attention of elected officials? Well, I think uh, I, I think what we've got is uh, the the notion of polls and how you state the question. I mean, obviously, with the backdrop of the uh, leaked draft of the U.S. Supreme Court opinion, the whole co- the whole conversation now about uh, Roe versus Wade likely being struck down uh, sometime later this summer. Um, you've got a lot of folks uh, trying to assess: uh, Is this a real changing climate? I think in Oklahoma, what we see from these polls and what we know from lawmakers, the governor, and action that's been taken in this legislative session is that we are still a strong pro-life state, um, and even in instances where the bill the governor signed um, uh, just last week, um, you do have the issue of exceptions for the life of the mother, rape and incest, uh, that if those are reported as crimes to the police, then then that is in the bill. So I think, I think there gets to be a situation of a lot of hysteria and a lot of emotion on both sides of, of this question. But when you really boil it down, I'm not sure that we're seeing a significant change in public sentiment. Ryan. Well, you know, I do think that we are in for some immediately dark days. Um, there are going to be women, including women that uh, probably consider themselves pro-life by, you know, many definitions of the word uh, or of the phrase uh, that are going to be denied abortion care in the state of Oklahoma. And I think that unfortunately there will be some catastrophic health care consequences and, and potentially even uh, lives lost as a result of the regime that we're about to enter in Oklahoma, where uh, assuming the Supreme Court opinion is what the draft suggests, that we are about to enter a, a stage in Oklahoma where virtually all abortions are legal, uh, and we are going to create a bounty system for people, private citizens, to go out and try to enforce this anti-abortion policy on their fellow Oklahomans. Um, but with that said, and, and I know that it's, it's difficult in a situation like that where you, you see imminent harm coming to people that you care about to, to see any sort of hope, but I do think that we are about to see uh, an upending of the traditional abortion politics nationally and here in Oklahoma. I mean, the, the first way that I think that we're going to see that is um, for the last 50 years, the, the pro-choice movement, uh, the, the tenet of their strategy was when enough Uh, win enough presidential elections and the Senate so that you have enough justices on the court so that if one doesn't wake up in the morning that you still have reproductive rights. And eventually that policy played itself out. Justice Ginsburg passes away and the subsequent set of events, we've lost the court and Roe is about to go away. Um, And on the other side, what you've seen are Republicans who for 50 years, many of whom have I think exploited the uh, beliefs of the evangelical Christian wing of the Republican primary electorate um, to elect and and install uh, you know anti-regulatory judges. Mm-hmm. They've been doing this without any sort of consequences because there's always been a constitutional backstop. That's about to go away. They're going to face these consequences, and I think we're going to have uh, for the first time in 50 years a real nuanced political discussion on reproductive rights in Oklahoma. You know, I think it's interesting, though. I think one of the points that's lost in this whole conversation is the fact that 
Roe versus Wade, if that goes away, what we have is the states back in control of making these decisions. And I think in this instance, I think uh, I would argue with you, Ryan, that I think Oklahoma will continue to be a strong pro-life state, uh, not just because uh, numerically we have uh, a significant number of more Republicans in registration and philosophically Pro-life has been a major tenet of uh, of the of the principles and philosophy and and values that uh, Republicans have have espoused, and frankly, that the candidates that have run uh, on the Republican Party label uh, have believe in strongly. So um, I think I think it makes for good fodder. I think uh, certainly at the national level, the fact that we have had uh, on the left these folks radicalize the conversation uh, to their you know, frankly, to their benefit. It great, it's great for fundraising. It's great mm-hmm. for uh, all that goes along with it. But uh, uh, in Oklahoma, I don't think we're going to see um, a significant change anytime soon in this conversation. I mean, I would agree that I don't. Th- we're not going to get abortion on demand in Oklahoma. That's not going to be the case. But the current situation where we're about to have an outright total ban, I don't think that that lasts long either. Oklahomans are somewhere in between. That's what this poll suggests. And I wouldn't be surprised if we don't get back to at least 20 weeks, 21 weeks of the ability of women to go get abortions in the state of Oklahoma, that that returning in the near future. Uh, Because I think, again, they've been able to pass these laws. The consequences haven't had to be faced because they had a constitutional backstop. That's gone. When those consequences become real, I think that we'll see some change in the type of policies we see coming out of the and Capitol. It, and it probably will change the conversation because it will become a true conversation about life mm-hmm. and uh, the value that uh, the individual places on that. Governor Stitt signs legislation reducing the unemployment eligibility depending on the labor market. House Bill 1933 puts a sliding scale on the eligibility weeks between 16 to 26 weeks. So if fewer people are filing, then the state will lower the amount the unemployed get. Ryan, how could this impact jobless Oklahomans? Well, I think that it could, uh, and I think it will, definitely shorten the number of weeks of eligibility that they'll be able to seek retraining uh, if they need to find a new opportunity in the workforce. Um, I think it's going to force individuals that find themselves in a situation where they've lost their job or they've been, you know, for whatever reason, you know, they've been laid off or downsizing or, you know, whatever that may be, uh, that they'll feel more pressure to take that first job that comes their way rather than the job that's best for them. Uh, and usually the job that's best for them means one that pays them a little bit more. And that's ultimately better for all of us in the economy. If people are working in the job that gives them the maximum amount of uh, benefit and satisfaction, we all, we all benefit from that. And I think that uh, this creates more desperation in that unemployed workforce. And frankly, I think that this comes out of a conversation that began during the pandemic towards the tail end of the pandemic. It was this idea that uh, the very generous unemployment benefits that had been extended throughout the pandemic and went well beyond what they had traditionally been, uh, even in recent history, that that contributed to a workforce that didn't want to go back to work once COVID restrictions were being lifted. I think that there's a lot more to it. I don't think that that's as simple of an explanation of, of why folks didn't want to go back to work. Uh, you know, And whether that was they wanted to go get a new uh, training, new education, or you know, frankly, working those frontline jobs at a, at a fast food uh, restaurant are really hard, uh, really hard, really challenging. And if you're not getting paid and you don't have benefits and you're not appreciated there, why go back? And so, you know, I hate anytime we've got economic policies that really kind of trade on this desperation of workers. Um, again, I think that this is born out of that conversation about 
unemployment benefits leading to a lack of a workforce. But uh, that's this is just you know one part of why we're having workforce issues in the state of Oklahoma. I don't think that this is going to address that, and I think it's going to hurt some workers in the process. Neva? Well, I think what it does address is what I would characterize as the truly unemployed versus the chronically unemployed. I mean, you have, uh, you have a situation with this bill where it was designed really to encourage people receiving unemployment benefits to re-enter the workforce as soon as possible. And I think you do have that segment uh, in a in a time period in Oklahoma where we have very low unemployment. We have uh, on every corner a, uh, a job opening sign, and we have a situation where folks that do want to go to work, there are opportunities. Now, I agree with Ryan. I mean, if you have someone that has been in the workforce uh, for whatever reason, they have a job situation change, and they want to uh, move into something that is either a new um, a, a new trade or something that requires uh, uh, additional education, that does factor in. But that's a very, very small slice of what we're talking about. And I think, uh, I think frankly, uh, the legislature uh, was wise to, uh, to address this uh, post-hard uh, pandemic period, where, as you say, Ryan, when these folks were getting $600 additional you know, a week, uh, it became a very different environment on the, uh, unemployment, uh, on the unemployment factor. Now they're trying to give this sliding scale of 16 to 26 weeks on eligibility to uh, not only um, kind of fix the fix the system overall, but also make sure that they keep the system solvent so that they can continue to provide benefits for those who are truly in need. The state legislature approves a plan to revamp the Medicaid program into a value-based health care model. It does include some elements of the governor's managed care plan eventually halted by the state Supreme Court. Neva, what's different here? Well, I think what's different is a year later and this uh, evolution through the legislative session of a lot of conversation and really um, the conversation involving lawmakers. I mean, when this first was rolled out a year ago uh, by the governor, uh, there had been really no conversation. In this instance, we saw lawmakers, uh, the officials from the health care authority, we had the various stakeholders coming together, having the conversation and trying to hammer out something that was beneficial and better for all parties concerned in their estimation. So I think that uh, you had you had some groups, uh, the Hospital Association and, and others who had initially been very vehement against uh, this idea that, uh, that came around because, again, Again, there were guardrails put in place. There were things uh, such as the shop bill that we talked about a number of times uh, last year, uh, the thing that would allow hospitals to uh, allow the state to uh, draw down on the federal matching funds, and, and that would in significantly increase uh, funding uh, for the rural hospitals, mm-hmm. which was a, a large part of this conversation as well. So I think uh, I think when you look at something like uh, moving from uh, uh, moving from a system that was uh, basically every person. Um, it was a fee-for-service model, and moving to something where every person is covered under under the contracts, uh, it is a it is a it's certainly a significant change. But it appears to be one that, uh, uh, for the most part, I think we're seeing uh, folks pretty much uh, in agreement that this is at least a reasonable model to move toward. And I think uh, most lawmakers anticipate that the governor 
will sign uh, will sign this piece of legislation. It hasn't happened at the time we're recording, but uh, we we will see uh, five o'clock Friday uh, will be the end of session, and some action likely will take place. Ryan. Well, you know, I think that this also, you know, goes into the, the uh, another chapter in the book of the Oklahoma legislature asserting some check on the executive branch. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is uh, all of this conversation really uh, initiated whenever the governor and the Oklahoma Health Care Authority under the governor's direction and his appointee's direction, uh, you know, tried to uh, put these contracts out and, you know, make these selections and create this managed care policy all on their own. The Supreme Court ultimately intervened and said, that the health care authority had uh, exceeded their legislative grant of power in trying to enter into these contracts. And then the legislature was then able to enter the chat and uh, have a, you know, have a months long negotiated uh, conversation between, as Neva said, all of the stakeholders, not everybody's happy from my understanding, but when you have, you know, Representative Marcus McIntyre, who had been one of the uh, I think chief critics of the healthcare or the plan that the healthcare authority had put forward. Um, you know, he's now co-author of this legislation, and uh, you know that's that's really what happens whenever you start to work these things through the legislative process rather than make just unilateral executive decisions. And the, one of the things that Representative McIntyre said that was really important to him was, you know, it's not going to be one provider. Uh, you know, I think it, uh, the the article I read said that it was going to be up to three provi- or at least three providers. Oklahoma providers, and I think that um, that was something that was re- really important to Representative McIntyre, and that probably, once once you had him on board, uh, I think that that was kind of a signal. You know, there was, uh, you know, no debate, no questions on the floor, uh, which is, you know, often the case whenever you've got a very complex bill, because uh, most of the people that really, most of the lawmakers that truly understand what went into this bill, they've already asked all the questions that they needed to ask, you know, whether it was in committee or in, in conference rooms, whatever that looks like. And so whenever it comes up, it, it's going to sail. And the signals are who's on board, who are those co-authors, because you've got members. I remember when I was in, in the House, there were definitely subjects that I wasn't an expert on and didn't follow. And I always wanted to see who, right. who was lining up on that bill, because I knew that I trusted them on that subject. And so when you start to see the people and the organizations that lined up on this, even members that aren't subject matter experts on managed care, they can say, all right, well, this is a compromise and it's something we're going to vote for. And I, I'm with Neva. I, I, I would be surprised if the governor doesn't sign or let this bill become law. You know, and it's interesting. You talk about uh, kind of what happens when it finally gets to the end of a long stretch and a lot of conversation, give and take, and, and a process, is that in the House, there were no questions, no debate. It, it just, uh, people were ready. They knew, they knew what the bill was and clearly had made their decision how they were going to vote. Despite an ongoing scandal with Swadley's barbecue, lawmakers have no plans to change the structure of the state tourism department. Lieutenant Governor Matt Pinnell had asked lawmakers to reverse a 2018 law by taking oversight away from the agency's director and back in the hands of Tourism and Recreation Commission. Ryan, why couldn't the legislature get this done? I think it was just a matter of timing. Um, I, I don't think that there's any lack of legislative will to get this done. Uh, but when you're thinking about how you're going to claw back that authority uh, and how you're going to structure that, I think that the lawmakers are right to say that they didn't want to, you know, just very quickly uh, enter into this uh, conversation about what that legislation would look like, what that authority would look like. Because if you really are going to create that that check and take some of that power back from the executive that the legislature gave, you know, not just Governor Stitt, but all governors moving forward in 2018, when they gave them that authority, taking it back needs some you know, thoughtful consideration. But I, 
I would be very surprised if we don't enter this next legislative session in 2023 with uh, legislation like this, but but probably reconsidering the entire swath of that 2018 grant of power to the executive branch. Uh, so it's uh, to me, it's it's unlikely that it will be just you know focused on the tourism department. I think that we'll see the legislature uh, whole cloth look at um, you know trying to rebalance. Uh, some of the powers that they gave to the executive in 2018. Neva? I think that's exactly right. I mean, too near the end of session, and I think you have this House Special Investigative Committee that is uh, not only examining the Swadley deal, but they want to delve into much more of what's gone on at uh, tourism uh, contracts, other things. So this is going to be a process that's going to take some time. Probably over the summer, there'll be a number of hearings, and I think that that we've seen with Representative Martinez uh, that he is very intent on getting to the bottom and getting answers to a lot of these uh, questions. And I don't, I agree with you, Ryan. I think the, uh, um, the climate out there and the sentiment is, is that there needs to be some change. The question is, let's don't rush to just make change for change's sake, but let's figure out what it really needs to look like. So I think next session, we'll see a lot of that conversation. Tourism will lead off because mm-hmm. of just the controversy and the issues that are at play right now. And and the other component, I think, to this conversation is that uh, to uh, for lawmakers to think that the lieutenant governor, who still is in the mix and in the conversation, and there's still questions about uh, you know uh, what has gone on in terms of uh, uh, the approval of uh, payments and other things uh, that have uh, come to light, that I think there needs to be this full vetting, and I think that's what lawmakers are uh, are laying out now uh, in the uh, in the last days of this legislative session. Well, then, then coming out of the investigations and Representative Martinez's investigation in the House, I, I suspect that in addition to conclusions of fact, that there's going to be some recommendations. Um, they're going to, and those recommendations may inform how the legislature might want to, you know, try to better protect state resources and, and dollars from, you know, what, whether it's negligent or reckless or intentional, uh, you know, you know uh, actions by people that we've placed in positions of leadership and power over our state tax dollars. So I think that we'll, we'll see some of those recommendations, uh, Neva, whether it happens in those or interim studies, uh, this is going to be a conversation and I, we're going to see, I think, you know, probably leadership runs these bills uh, and, you know, those will, We'll start talking about those in January. Well, and I think this investigative committee taking the taking the posture that they're going to subpoena the folks that come before them, that it's a serious uh, conversation. Um, I think it sets a tone where they are really, it's not just a window dressing situation. It's not just something where we're going to make a first quick pass through, find out what we find out and move on. This is something I think where there is an intense interest on the part of the House. Now, the Senate didn't come alongside them on this, although uh, the pro tem has said that certainly uh, uh, that this needs to be, uh, this needs to be looked looked at, but again, made the point that it's too late in session to rush, rush into something and do it too quickly. So um, I will, We'll watch, I think, over the summer with fascination these hearings, and I think there will be several, um, and then we'll see where it goes beyond that. But uh, it will definitely be a conversation and a number of bills, I'm sure, pre-filed before the next session. Well, and if if Governor Stitt has a second term in office, uh, then I think that the powers that he has in his second term could very well be very different than the powers that he has 
uh, enjoyed in his first term. Well, and it's also an election year, so also in the event a Democrat gets nom- gets elected into the office, I'm sure the Republican leadership will probably want to change how much power the executive Absolutely. has. Absolutely, and and I think that if you if you look at what Democrats have been saying, uh, and including statewide Democrats like Joy Hoffmeister running for governor herself, um, have been they've been talking about you know corruption. They've been talking about accountability and checks and balances. I think that that's going to be a central key uh, theme, uh, both in some Republican primaries, but certainly going into the general election. So, you know, whoever the next governor is, uh, you're whoever, you know, all the folks running, I think are running for a position that will have considerably fewer powers uh, at the end of uh, May 2023 than they currently have right now. The Oklahoma Republican Party elected a new leader over the weekend. A.J. Ferrati is taking over as chairman after John Bennett resigned his position earlier this year to run for Congress. Neva, what do you think Ferrati will bring to the GOP? Well, I think I think we see uh, what there's a clear indication that there's a shift uh, with uh, many, many in the Republican Party wanting to see the party get back to business, be able to uh, uh, be a be a political entity that can fundraise, that can be engaged in doing grassroots activity, can help with uh, turnout efforts, uh, certainly uh, looking toward November um, and uh, being able to fully support the slate of Republican nominees. So I think you have someone uh, with A.J. Ferrati. He was 12 and a half years uh, uh, prior to the, um, uh, the the time that John Bennett was chairman. In previous uh, chairmanships, he was the general counsel. So he's been somebody intimately involved with the party, uh, knows uh, knows the ropes. It was interesting that uh, Governor Stitt came. He, he clearly uh, nominated and, and wanted uh, uh, his choice to be uh, A.J. Ferrati. And I think we see um, we also see, I think, some unity developing in the party uh, to the extent that the uh, C- director of C- communications for John Bennett, Miles Rahimi, uh, was the other candidate in the race. Um, and what we saw at the end of the vote was that uh, that there was uh, the uh, Miles Rahimi came forward and said, you know, let's do this by acclamation and uh, wanted to show a, a sign of unity, which uh, I think all Republicans, uh, that small group that were there in the room on s- last Saturday, but the broader group that pay attention to this, that are the activists, I think they see this as a promising signal that uh, that there'll be less infighting and less uh, divisiveness and more a common goal of unity looking toward what they can do to promote the Republican Party and make sure that Republicans continue to be elected from the top of the from the top of the ballot down. Right. Well, if you go back in time to 2018, which just seems like a universe ago at, at this <laughs> the point, before right? times, just, yes. the before times, uh, if you get back to 2018, summer of 2018, <laughs> uh, you've got Governor Stitt, uh, who's not governor at the time, you know, running for office as an out, outsider candidate. I mean, he was the quintessential outsider candidate, uh, wins uh, the nom- Republican nomination, becomes governor. Um, and then you have an outsider who is chair of the party or, or a guy who's perceived as an outsider, even though he's been in an elected office and, you know, he's got all of the trappings of the establishment. But of course, you know, John Bennett would, uh, you know, argue with anybody uh, calling him an insider, uh, especially the establishment. But, you know, he was the anti-establishment establishment candidate. Uh, he's now running for Congress. Uh, and 
you know, from what I understand, is considered one of the the front runners in that race uh, based on some of the polling. So the idea that he's this fringe guy who now runs for Congress and he's going to finish dead last doesn't seem to be the case right now. Uh, but that's that's another story. Uh, <laughs> we'll wait till later <laughs> yeah. in June. And, and, then, and then whenever uh, now you've got Governor Stitt, who is the outsider gubernatorial candidate who now represents the establishment coming to endorse the establishment a candidate uh, candidate at the uh, GOP state convention who then wins um, you know so it's it is difficult to say that this is the establishment winning a victory um, whenever you've got somebody who was an outsider running for governor um, but it that's kind of what we've got is that I think that uh, the GOP wants you know some sort of return to normal uh, to get away from the the John Bennett's of the world um, I think that Making that the, the the difficult task that I think that the GOP especially has politically is that they have super majorities in the state of Oklahoma, and it, it's really difficult to govern and to maintain uh, durable political coalitions on particular issues whenever you've got such large numbers. I know that that seems counterintuitive, but the bigger your camp is, the harder it is to keep everybody under the same tent. Um, I particularly think that this is going to be very uh, challenging for the GOP over the next couple of years, as I said earlier in the program that the consequences of their uh, reproductive rights laws, that the majority of Oklahomans, including a majority of uh, registered Republicans, don't want to see a total ban on abortion. Um, when the reproductive rights uh, debate, when the abortion debate becomes more nuanced, I really think that that's going to be a challenge for Republican leadership as they figure out how to navigate that now that they actually have to face the consequences of these policies without a constitutional backstop to prevent them from having to uh, realize the full effect of what they've done in the legislature. You know, I thought it was interesting at at the meeting that uh, the governor also, in his remarks, kind of his broad, overarching remarks about uh, you know where he was in the campaign and all of that. He also made it clear that he had two picks that he wanted to see Republicans uh, elect or nominate, and that was uh, his uh, cabinet secretary for education running mm-hmm. for state superintendent Ryan Walters and Attorney General John O'Connor, who is in a battle with uh, uh, Gettner Drummond, who came close to winning the Attorney General's post uh, uh, four years ago by just a few hundred votes, uh, uh, lost that to Mike Hunter. So uh, it, it's interesting that there's clearly um, there, there's clearly a lot of give and take. I mean, Republicans don't uh, don't are not in lockstep any more than the Democrats. I mean, in terms of just there there is this one you know kind of one slate one appeal, but Mm. there is competition. And I think that's what has been, uh, uh, that has been the key to Republicans continuing continuing to grow in numbers is that the quality and the strength of a broad base of candidates running statewide for elective office has made the difference. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.